Uh, how many of you got to dunk a contender today? How many of you got to dunk successfully? How many of you tried to dunk a contender and failed? Whoa, a lot more hands going up for that. All right, how many of you dunked my son Carson? You got it done. A few of you? All right. So I might have thrown the ball more than three times uh, trying to dunk Carson, and, and I was un- unsuccessful at the adult distance. I was unsuccessful at mid-range. Finally, I went to the kiddie line. I actually got down on my knees, because I figured if I'm going to throw it from the kiddie line, I have to be down on my knees and be the height of a kitty, although I was probably still taller than the average child. And, and, and from the kitty line, I, I, I dunked him. So it was worthwhile to, uh, to do that and to see him go in the drink. I do think they need to revise. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. I, I do think, I think they need to revise the game though, okay? So maybe for next year, okay? Revision of the game should be that you could pay extra, pay money period to buy a bag of ice. And every time someone successfully dunks them, they get to dump a bag of ice into the water so it progressively gets colder. What do you think? Isn't that a great idea? Yeah. Yeah. I, I doubt that they would cheer like that <laughs> for that way of doing it. I don't know. I just thought that would be a, big, a nice twist. We talked about that a little bit earlier, a nice twist on things. I've not said a lot about uh, Baptist Missions. I know some of you stuck around for the extra session uh, one morning where I talked a little bit more about what the Lord's doing around the world. Thank you for coming by the table. But just one last opportunity here. I thought I would say a little bit about our display. If you've not been back there, I, I, I appreciate so many that signed up after last night to be prayer partners. Thank you for that. I think it's almost 30 people that said they would pray daily for the Lord of the harvest to send forth more laborers into his harvest field. So thank you very much for that. Uh, let me mention those that were in the session that was the extra session. And really, this is for everybody, but the extra session that I did, I talked about five goals for the future of Baptist admissions. Those are all, all outlined in this little brochure called Advance the Vision. I'd encourage you to pick up one of those. And then our quarterly magazine is called Advance. And uh, if you've not yet picked up one of those, it really, it's a great magazine that just tells the stories of what God is doing around the world. The, the front story on this one, this is the most recent one, is my visit back in December to the Central, Central African Republic where it all started. That's where our, our founder went and then came back to the United States to begin what became Baptist Admissions. And so imagine 100 plus years of ministry there and uh, the fruit of that ministry. And this story tells a little bit about the sacrifice of those early missionaries, as well as now, even today, the sacrifice of, of many of those that are Christians in that nation that is a war-torn nation. Uh, most of the nation, it, it, they have a rightly, duly elected president in the capital city, but most of the rest of the nation is run by the rest, or by the former president and his, uh, his, uh, I don't know what you want to call them, warlords, I guess. And so imagine living in that kind of a place. Imagine being a pastor in that kind of a place, not knowing when it could possibly happen that they come along and destroy your church, threaten your life, and actually kill you. There were a number of pastors that lost their lives in the midst of all that. So really some amazing stories. And then this article is, or this uh, one is entitled, Hope Comes When Help uh, Comes. And, and really this just talks about the primary focus, but there are others, is our World Relief Fund. And our World Relief Fund is designed to help in times of disaster. So you can imagine right now the bulk of world, world relief monies that are given, because it's 100%. If you give a dollar to world relief, that dollar will go directly to world relief. BMM doesn't take a penny of it. But right now we are, we are sending quite a bit of money into the Ukraine and helping pastors and churches and Christians there, both in Ukraine as well as we have missionaries on the border uh, that are helping the, the refugees coming out of Poland. And so there's an article about world relief in, in this, this one as well as a lot of other 
helps types of ministries where we're just helping people that are facing those kind of difficulties. So I wanted to mention that and I encourage you if you haven't grabbed those. And let me know if you want to want to subscribe to the Advanced Magazine as well. That comes out quarterly and will keep you up to date on what uh, the Lord's doing around the world through Baptist Admissions. I also want to say thank you to Pastor Phil and the staff and the great job that you have done and just what a joy it is to serve together with you this week. Appreciate the opportunity even to be here. I don't take that lightly that I'm given the opportunity to open God's Word. And I want to say thank you to you. We wouldn't have this, obviously, if you weren't here. And so thank you for being a part. And thank you for the way that you enthusiastically um, do everything, it seems like. But one of the highlights for me is getting to sit near the front and listen to you worship. I mean, this, this whole room just kind of explodes with beautiful, beautiful sound as you worship the Lord together. And the worship team was such an important part of that. So thanks for the great job you did in leading us. But I know I've been on the other end of it like they are, and it's really, really tough when you lead a, a group like this. And if they don't sing, it can be the opposite. It can be kind of discouraging when you feel like you're just up there singing solos or duets or whatever. But that wasn't the case here. So thanks for your heart for the Lord that really was has been evidenced by the way you have sung, and the way you have attentively attentively listened to God's Word and taken notes uh, all throughout the week. So I appreciate that very, very much, as well as our personal interactions over the course of this past week. Let me also mention just a a few other quick things about uh, BMM. I I trust you've been to our website. I trust you've been to our social media sites. We have a podcast. I'd love to have you subscribe to that. It's called Send 938 Podcast, uh, if you're not already subscribed to that. And then Pastors, I'd love to be able to minister in your church if there's an opportunity. That's what most of my uh, Sundays are spent doing is itinerant preaching primarily about missions, but uh, I'm, I'd be glad to come in and do a Bible conference or a missions conference or a missions emphasis Sunday or whatever you want me to do, men's retreat, uh, any and all of those types of things. I'd love to have that opportunity if the Lord would put that upon your heart. We'd love to be able to minister in that way. And let me just say too, don't worry about the distance. And don't worry about anything related to expenses. I remember pastoring a small church and thinking, man, I wish I could have that guy come and preach, but I, our church could never afford to fly him here, or whatever, that kind of stuff. And I never invited guys that lived in Ohio <laughs> because of that. And so don't worry about that. I, the, the Lord will take care of all that. So I'd just love to be able to minister wherever the Lord would have me to minister in your church potentially. Let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Luke chapter 14 tonight. Luke chapter 14. Our theme has been what? It's been life. It's more than a game. Yeah, life, it's more than a game. And I've tried to remind you that of that along the way in terms of connecting with each of the messages. But the thing that came to my mind as I was thinking about that and then thinking about this text that we will look at tonight is it made me think about my family. And it made me think about uh, the four wonderful ladies that God has blessed me with. And that is my wife. I know it's, she's hard to pick out because she looks like one of the girls. But uh, she's the redhead. The, the girls didn't get mom's red hair. Uh, but Ruth, my sweetheart of 37 years, and then our three girls, Ellen, Tori, and Julia. Now, I love my wife dearly, but she is wired differently than me. Guys, have you noticed that yet? Yeah, right? She's wired differently than me, especially when it comes to something that she has trained all of those three girls to do. What do you think it is that she has trained those three girls to do well, efficiently, and... Uh, in a, in a thrifty manner. Maybe I should put it that way. Yeah, you guessed it. Shopping, okay? Now, this is how I shop. I avoid it like the plague. And when I have to shop, I, I, I shop, I get it done, I get out as fast as possible. One year, I shopped for my wife's entire Christmas presents in seven minutes. I was so proud of myself 
Now, she might have like dropped some major league hints to me as to what it was she had gotten, you know, or what it was she wanted to get. And, and so I could just go like straight to the rack and there it is. And I don't even remember exactly what it was. It was just something in the mall, which I avoid those places too. Those, are, those places are evil. Malls, bad. And so I, that, that's my idea of shopping, unless it's Cabela's. Okay, I'll give you that. But it's just get in, get out, get it done. Versus my wife, her version of shopping is let's take a leisurely afternoon to look at all this wonderful junk stuff. And let's compare all the prices and all the sizes and all the colors. And so early on in our marriage, I used to go with her, thinking, you know, that all oh, this would be a wonderful encouragement. But I found myself increasingly frustrated by the female version of shopping versus the male version of shopping. So we both decided it was better for both of us if we did as little shopping together as possible. And some of you wives are saying amen to that. And if, you're, if your man has not yet figured that out, let me reinforce, guys. <laughs> it's okay to let her go shopping with one problem. What's the problem? Well, when the girls were still at home, she would take them shopping. And oftentimes it was so that, you know, maybe they could go back to school shopping and get clothes for back to school. And so they'd come home from their afternoon or maybe even their day of shopping. And I'd see all these bags get carried in. And they begin to put, put it on display across the kitchen table or maybe out on the living room floor. And what is one, what is the one thought that's going through my mind? How much did it cost? Exactly. That was the one thought that was constantly, and that's usually after I oohed and odd, you know, and maybe not verbally out loud so the girls could hear, but eventually, eventually we would get to the point where it was like, so how much did it cost? <laughs> how much did it cost? And that is actually the theme or a similar theme to what I want us to look at tonight in this passage of Scripture that we'll be studying from Luke chapter 15 in relationship to that very idea. If we jump into Luke 14, excuse me, if we jump into the middle of the text, and we'll come back and read the entire text, but if we jump into the middle of the text, I think that the key idea to the entire text is, is that idea. It's the idea of counting the cost. It's found here in verse 28 of Luke 14, Luke 14, 28. It says this, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. That's the, that's the center, that's the hub around which this entire text rotates. It's the idea of counting the cost. And I think it's important, as I've said other nights, it's important for us to understand the text in part through the context. And so the context is that multitudes of people are following Jesus. That is stated in verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, and so these myriads of people are following Jesus around. Why were they following Jesus around? Probably for a whole variety of reasons. Some of them were wondering, is this really the Messiah? Is he really the Christ? Some of them had heard that he was a miracle worker, and so they were wondering if they might have the opportunity to see him perform a miracle. Others, I think, wanted just to hear what he had to say. They maybe had even heard rumors that he was kind of becoming famous for putting the religious leaders in their place, which every average Jew wanted to happen because they were tired of the tyrants that the religious leaders of the day were. And so some of them were curious, but I would guess that the vast majority of them were fair-weather followers, spiritual spectators. But Jesus wasn't interested in having fair-weather followers or spiritual spectators. He wanted these people to know that Christianity is not just about showing up to hear someone preach. 
It isn't, something, it isn't about watching a miracle or, or hearing something controversial. Christianity isn't about being a part of the crowd. He wanted them to know that there is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to take a second and make sure you understand tonight that I am not saying by the things that we'll talk about in relationship to salvation or being a disciple that that's how you then earn salvation. All right, that you do these three things that we'll talk about and that merits you salvation and that makes you a Christian. That is not the case. The Bible is very clear in terms of the gospel. And the gospel is simply this, that that God is a holy God. And as a holy God, he cannot allow sinful human beings into his presence in heaven. He can't even allow us into a relationship with him because God is a holy God. The Bible also teaches that God is a just God. And because God is a just God, the Bible says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? He has to punish sin. And so the reason that all of us deserve to spend eternity in hell is because a holy God who is also just must punish sin. All of the sins that we have committed, we deserve to spend eternity separated from God in hell because of our sin. Our sin is that serious. It's not just something that's no big deal. It's serious. So God is holy, God is just, but aren't you thankful tonight that the Bible also makes it clear that God is a loving God? God is a loving God. You all know the verse, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his what? Only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So God is a loving God, and God is a gracious God which means that he offers salvation to us as a free gift that is received by repentant faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so salvation comes to a person's heart. A person is saved, delivered from their sin. When they repent of that sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for that sin. And so tonight, I want to make sure that nobody here thinks, well, I have to do this, and then I have to do that, and if I do all three of these things, that that'll get me to heaven. No, saving faith alone in Jesus Christ alone is what gets you to heaven. That's it. And if tonight you have never repented of your sin and placed all of your faith in Christ, I would implore you to do that tonight. It's as simple as turning from your sin, turning to the one who died for it, believing he died, was buried, and rose again. It's as simple as that in receiving the free gift that Jesus has provided. And so the text tonight is not talking about how to get saved. But the text is talking about being the kind of Christian that all of us ought to be. It's talking about being a disciple. It's talking about being a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ. Or to put it this way, a disciple who is an all-in follower of Jesus Christ. Let's read the text together tonight. And I want to point out something that really will distinguish each one of the points of the message in terms of how the, the text is even structured. So begin with me in verse 25 of Luke, 20, or Luke 14, where it says this, Now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, here's our key key phrase, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, "And, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you attending to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, 
Whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, was not able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Did you notice the key phrase? It's that phrase, cannot be my disciple. And so what Jesus is talking about in this portion of Scripture is this, that the Lord wants us to count the cost and be willing to pay the price of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, an all-in follower of Jesus Christ. You don't earn salvation this way, but this is the way God wants every child of God to live their lives. And tonight I want us to notice the three demands of discipleship. Jesus says it very clearly when he says, if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. And so notice those three demands of discipleship with me from the text. We see the first one in verse 26, where again, the Bible says this, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And so the first demand of discipleship is an unrivaled love. Discipleship demands unrivaled love. Now, I think it's important for us to understand what it is that Jesus is saying here, because again, think that through. Jesus is saying, unless you hate, so is that exactly what Jesus is, say, is meaning, is that you hate, you actually hate these other people? Well, I think another portion of Scripture sheds light on this, and one of the keys to interpreting the Bible is comparing Scripture with Scripture. And let me read to you from Matthew chapter 10, and verse 37, where similar verbiage is used, but it really enables us to fully grasp what it is Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 14. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37, Jesus puts it this way. He says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so what Jesus is talking about here, he's actually making a statement of comparison. He's not saying literally, you have to hate every member of your family. After all, the Bible teaches clearly in so many other places that we're to love our family. And so it's a matter of comparison that Jesus is using here, that of a lesser love. I like to think of it this way, is that he wants us to love him so much that by comparison, it would almost seem that we would hate every, everyone else because we love Jesus Christ so much. Notice the comparisons he uses. He uses the comparison of family there in verse 26. He speaks in terms of father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. So he uses that comparison of family. No member of your family can be more important to you than Jesus Christ. Secondly, he uses the comparison of self. He says, and you have to hate your own life. In other words, you cannot put yourself first, which is so contrary to what the world says today, is it not? I mean, just think about you, just follow your heart, just do what makes you happy. Jesus is saying, no, 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 do what makes him happy because you love him more than you love yourself because we are by nature self-lovers. But genuine disciples should have such a deep-seated love for Christ that their love for others and self will pale in comparison to their love for Christ. You see, it's when we have to make choices that our true loyalties are displayed Choices reveal who or what we really love. You know, I've kind of teased with you a little bit this week about being 
from Nebraska and being a Nebraska fan. At the same time, I lived in Iowa for 23 years. And so what do you think happened over time the longer I lived in Iowa in relationship to the sports teams in Iowa? The longer I was here, the more I found myself liking Jim Zobel, right? Remember him back in the day? It was hard not to like Jim Zobel. If you listen to WHO radio and, and the, the game was on, so I found myself, and I'm sorry for the Iowa State fans that didn't like Jim Zobel, okay? I don't know if, I don't know if Iowa State fans had, had an iconic radio announcer that was quite as good as, as Jim Zobel. And so I found myself over time, and, and yes, I found myself over time watching the Iowa State games too, and watching the Iowa games, and cheering for Iowa, and cheering for Iowa State, and then trying to figure out which one I was going to cheer for when they played each other, that kind of stuff. And so probably most of the season, if you'd been at my house when the radio was on or when, when the TV was on and Iowa was on or Iowa State was on and you listened to me, you would think, man, this guy, he's an all-in Iowa fan. I mean, he's all over cheering for the, for the Iowa Hawkeyes when they're playing basketball or football or, or maybe if the Iowa State game was on, you were like, wow, he's a big Iowa State fan. And you would think that I loved Iowa, that I loved Iowa State. And it would appear that way until one day... And that day was when the Hawkeyes or the Cyclones played Nebraska. That's right. Sorry to bring it up again. Right? And then it became very, very clear. As a matter of fact, I was there two of the games back in the late 80s, early 90s, when Iowa State beat Nebraska for like their only two times in I don't know how many, you know, 30-some years. I was at both of those games in, in the stadium watching the Cornhuskers get demolished by a team that would go on to win like three games all year. <laughs> And Nebraska was ranked in the top five and all that kind of stuff. Talk about miserable. But, but trust me, if you were at that game, you would have known that I wasn't cheering for the, Hawk, or for the Cyclones. Or if I was watching a, a Hawkeye-Nebraska game, I wasn't cheering for the Hawkeyes. You would know what I literally loved, who it was I really loved, because my choice had been made. And it's choices that reveal who or what we really love. When I have to choose between two loyalties, my true loyalty will be displayed. Let me ask you tonight, what kind of choices do you typically make when you have to choose between something temporal and something eternal? When you have to make a choice between something godly or being godly or being popular. When you have to make a choice between maybe sleeping that extra half an hour or spending time in your Bible or in prayer. When you have to make a choice between going to church or watching the big game or doing something for yourself. When you have to make a choice between spending free time on yourself or using some of that free time to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. When you make those kinds of choices, does it look like, is it clear that you love Jesus more than anything else? That's what Christ is speaking of here. When he says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to have that kind of love does your love for Christ make your love for anything or anyone else appear to be hatred? It might be a hobby. I have a number of hobbies. I do enjoy sports. I do enjoy hunting. But I have to make choices in relationship to those sports. I have to make choices in relationship to hunting where Jesus Christ is more important <laughs> than hunting. It might be one of your hobbies. It might be your job. It might be your friends. It might be popularity. If you had to choose, which one would it be? Don't be content with a love for Christ that is just slightly stronger than the other things you love. 
You cannot be a disciple if your love for Christ doesn't blow every other love away. That's what Jesus is saying here. He wants, he demands an unrivaled love. Because after all, what does he say at the end of that verse? If you don't do that, you cannot be my disciple. Do you have that kind of love for Jesus Christ that's unrivaled? The second demand of discipleship is found in the next verses. Next verse, verse 27, when it says this, and whoever does not bear his cross and come, come after me cannot be my disciple. What is that speaking of? I like to describe that in these terms. That is unequaled suffering. And really, it's not just suffering itself. It's a, a willingness to suffer. And almost an expectation that part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is that you will face things in your life that are the result of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so there's unequaled suffering. What, but what does that mean? Well, first of all, I want to make sure you understand this, this bearing the cross and carrying the cross is not something in terms of common trials or, of life or common, common troubles. What it doesn't mean is not the common trials of life. For some reason, I remember when I was young, people saying something like, well, I guess that's my cross to bear in life. I don't know why the Southern accent, but that's what I recall, okay? Maybe they were all Southerners. That, that's my cross to bear in life. And they'd go on to describe their, their bunions on their feet. And that's their cross to bear in life. Or, you know, some other weird malady they were going through. And that was their cross to bear in life. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Okay, It's not the common problems and troubles and trials that we face in life. What it does mean is this. It does mean a willingness to suffer. A willingness to suffer. Notice again the way the text puts it, whoever does not bear his cross, carry his cross. And I think it's important for us to understand how they would have, as that original audience, understood that statement. Because the cross to them was not a nice piece of jewelry that you wore around your neck, and I'm not knocking doing that, okay? But it wasn't a nice piece of jewelry you wore around your neck. The cross was a symbol of suffering, it was a symbol of reproach and shame and ultimately death. It was an instrument of execution. So when Jesus speaks here, they would have immediately pictured all those multitudes that are listening to Jesus Christ. They would have immediately visualized something very specific. They would have visualized a condemned man carrying his cross to a place of execution. That was familiar to every Israelite. Why? Because the Romans used it constantly. Some scholars say that as many as 30,000 crucifixions would have occurred during the lifetime of Jesus Christ. So all of those people that were alive in Jesus' time were very familiar with this style of execution. 30,000 people in one 30 plus years of life that Jesus lived on earth. And so they would have imagined a man being spat upon. They would have imagined a man being mocked. They would have imagined a man being laughed at. And ultimately, they would have imagined a man being cruelly, excruciatingly murdered or killed on that cross. And so when Jesus says here, to bear your cross, he's talking about the potential for that kind of suffering potential for that kind of suffering. You see, real disciples are willing to, to sacrifice and to suffer for the cause of following Jesus Christ. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to suffer for Christ if necessary? 
number of years ago, I had the opportunity of traveling to India and over the course of two weeks ministered really a kind of across the midsection of the nation of India from, from uh, Mumbai on, on the west coast to Hyderabad in the middle all the way to the east coast of, 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 of a smaller city uh, by the name of Vijaywada. And through that course of those two weeks, taught some in a Bible college and then taught some at some different pastors' meetings. And, 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 and honestly, I, I felt like I was totally unqualified to be there because here I was speaking and encouraging these pastors, and they were the spiritual giants in the room. I was just some American pastor that got invited, especially when I learned of the suffering, I learned of the hardship, I learned of what, what they had been through to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And I just felt like, well, I'm, I'm not sure why I'm the guy here preaching. But one of the things that I learned of after I had been there was I had ministered in this one specific uh, group of pastors. There were about 20 plus or so pastors that were in this pastor's meeting and I'd preached and gotten to know a little bit about them and their ministries. And then I got an email from my Indian host. I think it was a few weeks after I got back to the United States. And he told the story of what had happened to one of those pastors not long after we'd been together, one of those pastors was out by himself and he was accosted by a group of radical Hindus. Radical Hindus who did not want him preaching about the exclusive God of the Bible and Jesus Christ, his son. And so what they did to this pastor is they wrapped an extension cord around his neck and they had multiple people on each end of that extension cord and they began to pull that extension cord until the man began to suffocate. And they said to this pastor, if you will quit preaching and talking and teaching about this Jesus and the Bible, we won't kill you. So what they would do is they would pull that cord a little bit more tight, and each time as his you know, breath left him and as he became closer and closer to passing out and potentially dying, they would let off on it, and they would release it and let him catch a breath and then ask him the same question again. And every time he said, no, I won't do that. I'm going to continue to be faithful to my Lord and Savior. I'm going to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus. And they would hold it a little bit longer each time, and a little bit longer each time, a little bit longer each time. And he got to the point where he was getting closer and closer to, to passing out. And if it hadn't been for his parents rushing in when somebody came to tell them about that, they would have killed that man for preaching about Jesus. Out of their respect in India for their elders, they did not kill him and they dissuaded him from killing him. But that man could have lost his life, because he was a disciple of Christ, because he was willing to suffer. And to my knowledge this day, that man is still preaching about Jesus Christ, no matter what the threats are, no matter what the dangers may be, because he is a disciple of Christ. Are you that kind of follower of Jesus Christ? I'm amazed by how many Christians work in totally unsaved environments and nobody knows they're a Christian because they haven't ever proclaimed the fact that they're a believer in Christ. Or how many Christians go to a restaurant and don't even so much as pray? And, and I mean, I don't expect you to you know, stand up in the restaurant and say, hey, everybody, I'm going to pray. Listen up, okay? But at least bow your heads and, and, and in some way, shape, or form, that declares an allegiance to God, right? Or, or other things taking a stand on other issues related to Christianity because we're so fearful of what other people would think. And what kind of threat is there to our life in America, seriously? And yet Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be my disciple, you must be willing to pay the price. You must be willing to bear your cross, 
stand up for him and be willing to suffer? Are you willing to live for Christ no matter what you might suffer as a consequence? And I realize for some of you that may mean the potential of losing your job if you take a stand on something moral or ethical in your workplace. Then take a stand for something that the Bible clearly says to take a stand for and suffer if necessary, that the loss of that job. Or suffer in terms of people mocking you or calling you names that they associate with Bible-believing Christians today. Take a stand. Do what's right. Be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The Bible says very clearly, because if you don't, you cannot be my disciple. Unrivaled love, unequaled suffering. And then finally, unconditional surrender. Verses 28 through 30 really go on to tell the whole story. I mentioned verse 28 is the, the core idea, count the cost. And then Jesus illustrates that in a couple of ways. He makes a couple of comparisons. He compares somebody that's going to go build a tower and doesn't figure out ahead of time how much it's going to cost to build a tower, how foolish that would be, right? And that's illustrating this whole point of count the cost. So you should know ahead of time before you build a tower what it's going to cost. And then he talks about a war. You should figure out ahead of time whether or not you have enough soldiers to meet the army of, that has more soldiers than, than you do or whether or not you ought to send an ambassador out there to make a peace treaty rather than engaging in a war that you're guaranteed to lose. And he uses both of those comparisons to illustrate the idea of counting the cost. And so those are the comparisons. But then secondly, notice the challenge, because I think this is the essence of what we're talking about here in this last point and this last thing that Jesus is saying here, unconditional surrender. Notice what he says there in the passages of Scripture in relationship to that in verse 33. Verse 33, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's the challenge forsake all that he has. It's really a a word picture in the Greek. This idea of forsake all literally means to arrange away from. Can you kind of picture that? To to arrange, in other words, to to forsake all that you have by by pushing it away from yourself. It's 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 an issue, it's a principle of surrender. In some places, it's interesting, this this phrase could actually be translated in this way, to say goodbye. To arrange it away in such a manner that you're saying goodbye to something. Paul Benware describes it in this way. He says, quote, Practically speaking, the idea is that any believer who seriously desires to be Christ's servant must consciously, specifically, and prayerfully say goodbye to all people, all goals, all desires, and possessions that are important to him. Christ must have no rivals in his life. That does not mean that these things will be taken away from the believer. But should the sovereign, loving Lord remove them from his life, knowing what is best for his servant, the believer will have already said farewell to them. End of quote. Did you catch that? What he's saying is that we need to live with a spirit of surrender that says, you know, everything I have in life, and I don't just mean material possessions, but everything I have in terms of, of, of the job that I enjoy or the values, the things that we enjoy in life, everything that I have, even family, I should so say goodbye to it in the sense that if God does expect me to leave that all behind, I've already said goodbye to it. Or as he said, but should the sovereign sovereign loving Lord remove them from his life, the believer will have already said farewell to them. A genuine believer is willing to say goodbye to everything. To all people, to all plans, to popularity, to possessions, to positions, 
all of those things to follow Christ. Is that how you are living your life? A life of surrender. I mentioned that again. I mentioned that last night, and I'll mention it again tonight in relationship to missions. Why is it that there are fewer surrendering, or excuse me, why is it there are fewer going to the mission fields? Why is it there there are fewer even potential pastors to to occupy the pulpits and to shepherd the flocks of the churches of America today because so many are saying no to that proposition. In other words, they're saying, I'm not going to give up all my plans. I'm not going to give up all the stuff, my possessions. I'm not going to give up the things that are important to me. I want what I want, and I just like to kind of, you know, arrange my life my way and make God kind of, you know, convenient, but not too convicting and not too inconvenient. And so one of the greatest challenges we face as a mission agency is that so many are just simply saying no to that prospect. They're saying no to that prospect. Do you remember, I think I said it in one of the evening sessions, I know I said it in that extra morning session, but you remember me talking about how many Bibles do you own? How many Christians do you know? Um, How many churches do you know of? The fact that one in four people in the world today, two billion people in the world today have no Bible no, no Christian. There's no, there's no Bible preaching church within proximity of them. I remember one of our missionaries to China saying something that connected the dots between that idea and the needs of the world. They, they, they were missionaries in China, and it, it, this actually goes back to her first um, time of serving there in China. And she realized, you know, China has 1.4 billion people you know, in, in one country, which is just mind-boggling that in one nation there are that many souls and she was in China, and she realized that, that pro- in all likelihood, every person that she could see in this very busy marketplace, thousands and thousands of people, that in all likelihood, every last one of them had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every one of them had never heard the gospel of Christ. And this is what she said in relationship to that. She said this. She said, you know what? God's not okay with that. And I'm not okay with that. And that was part of her sense of God wanting her to stay and minister there in a place that needed the gospel so desperately because God's not okay with people never hearing about the gospel. And every born-again Christian had better not be okay with it either. So we ought to do all that we can, and we, and we ought to be willing to go if God wants us to do so. Maybe you're familiar with the story of William Borden. Some of us still buy little, I don't know if it's sweetened condensed milk or something like that that has the Borden name on it, maybe even some sour cream now and then or something that, because of the Borden dairy. Well, a very wealthy family at that time, at the time of this story, owned that still, and it was William Borden, Borden that was to become the heir of that fortune. William had gone to Yale University to be trained, and he had the prospects of a very long and, and successful and wealthy career but then God called him to be a missionary. He sensed that call. He was very burdened for China, but he was very burdened for a specific people group that were actually Arabic-speaking Muslims that lived in China. And so he, he set aside all of his other plans to go to Egypt to learn Arabic in order to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with this people group, Muslims in China. But while he was in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis, and within a month of contracting that, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. He died. After his death, though, the following words were found penned in the front of his Bible. 
the words were simply these, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. No reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. You know what? That's the life of a surrendered child of God. That I don't have a backup plan, or I don't have the safety net, I don't have to have all this and all that that makes me comfortable as a Christian in America. I just want to go and do what God wants me to do, and if that means leaving it all behind to take the gospel to some place where, where it's not being preached or where more people need, need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, I live by the motto, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. Christ wants you to say goodbye to everyone and everything in order to be his disciple. What have you been unwilling to surrender for Christ? What is it in your life that you would just, you are maybe even hanging on to? Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a, it's a hobby. Maybe it's a, it's a possession. Maybe it's simply your plan. Would you be willing to surrender that to Christ? Now, does that mean that everyone in this room is going to end up being a pastor or missionary? No, of course not. But everyone ought to live a life as a disciple of Jesus Christ that is totally surrendered to Him. Unconditional surrender. Will you, would you tonight say, God, you can have it all. I'm yours. I am completely surrendered to you. Because if the answer to that question is no, then what does Jesus say to that? What's the text say? Right? You cannot be my disciple. I hope every person in this room, once more than anything, apart from being a believer, wants more than anything to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for their sins. Let me just wrap up tonight by, by giving you some specific things I think the Lord wants us to do in light of this passage of Scripture. I like to think of this in terms of so what. So what are we supposed to do in light of what God has said? Number one, every one of us ought to evaluate our priorities and ask ourselves, if we really love Jesus so much that it looks like we hate other, other things. Is that true of you? Do you really love Jesus Christ so much that it looked by comparison? There's just no comparison, right? That's the idea. There's just no comparison. When you make those choices of life, do those choices demonstrate who it is you really love? Way above anybody or anything else. Secondly, decide to follow Christ no matter what you may suffer. Teenagers, if you go to a public school and you stand up for Jesus Christ, you are going to get made fun of. Are you willing to do that as a follower of Jesus Christ? Moms and dads, it may potentially jeopardize that, that promotion that you want or the, the better job that you want or maybe even the good job that you already have if you're willing to just live out your faith. And that doesn't mean get in people's faces and be a jerk about it. No, but just will, willing to live out your faith. In Jesus Christ, are you willing to suffer that way? Would you be willing to go to a place somewhere across the world, like Africa, like Indonesia, where you wouldn't have all the comforts of home and part of, it would, part of the suffering would just be the deprivations of life that you wouldn't have all those modern conveniences? Would you be willing to suffer that way if that's what God wanted you to do as a part of his call in your life? And number three, forsake everything that is standing in the way of fully surrendering to Christ. Forsake all. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time again in your word tonight and how it speaks to our hearts. 
Lord, we admit that our hearts are no different than the hearts of all of those followers, all those multitudes, and that at times we find ourselves or we see ourselves in the way they are represented in Scripture. Tonight, I'm thankful that Jesus, in a sense, has turned to us and said, you can't be my disciple unless you do this, unless you do that. I pray, Lord, that every person in this room would right now in their hearts be thinking, am I a disciple? Am I a disciple? And as they think about that, as we think about that corporately, I pray that you would help us all to come to a a point of decision, a point of us saying, yes, I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I haven't really given much for invitations this week, but I think it'd be good for us to pause here tonight on the last night. And if you would allow me to just ask you a question as we pause from prayer. Ask you a question, and that question is simply this. Are you willing to meet the demands to be a disciple of Jesus Christ tonight? And maybe one of these three matters, these three demands has especially struck home with you. Maybe it's about your loves. Maybe it's about being willing to suffer. Maybe it's about full surrender. That's between you and the Lord. But whatever it is, would you right now just tell God that? Would you just right now say, okay, Lord, I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to begin to make choices that demonstrate I love you the most. Or I'm going to continue. I'm going to strengthen those choices. I'm willing to suffer. I give everything to you. I surrender all. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Again, I won't, I won't have you come forward or do anything like that tonight. But with heads bowed and eyes closed, if, if tonight the Spirit of God is so at work in your hearts that you would say, tonight I'm deciding I'm going to be an all-in follower for Christ. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's a specific area that God has spoken to my heart about. And I realize you may already be that, so it's okay for you to not raise your hand, okay? But if tonight God has stirred your heart to make a decision about being a disciple of Christ, would you slip up your hand so I can pray for you and rejoice with you? Tonight I'm I'm saying to God, I'm I'm going to be a disciple. Amen. I want to be that kind of disciple. Amen. I I want to be that kind of, I'm making that decision tonight. One, Maybe one of those three years. Amen. Slip those hands up and down. Thank you. Thank you. Slip it up, slip it down. I don't want Jesus to say to me, you cannot be my disciple. Because I want to be a disciple. Anybody else that would join these? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Father, thank you for these that have raised their hands tonight to indicate that you have so worked in their hearts to make this decision. Lord, we realize that there may be many others that did not raise their hands because they're already living that way, and we rejoice in that. But we do pray for those that are making these these decisions that this would not just be a one-time decision, but this would be a daily decision to take up the cross and follow Jesus every single day. And that you would use us, Lord, as your surrendered servants who love you most. And that you even might, through this group of, of individuals, even pick out select people who would serve even in, in greater ways that maybe they've never really anticipated or thought about as they fully surrender to you. And that you would receive the glory for that. 
Lord, I would also pray for others that might still be struggling with this and still be wondering if this is what they really want to do. I pray that your spirit would work in, your heart, in their hearts uh, to make that decision uh, for your glory and your glory alone. I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much.